and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negor Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the horrific attack on Salman Rushdie, the award-winning and celebrated British Indian author who was stabbed on stage as he was about to speak in upstate New York. My guest today is Nader Hashemi, director of the Center for Middle East Studies and professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the University of Denver. Nader, welcome back to the Iran podcast. Um, thanks, Nagar, for the invitation, and thanks for the great work that you're doing on broadening the debate in the United States on questions related to Iran. It's great to have you. Thank you. Um, so, Nader, let's first start by this attack. We know the attacker is a 24-year-old named Hadi Matar from New Jersey. He's an American of Lebanese descent. Correct. And we know that he gave an interview, a very recent interview with the New York Post saying that he hasn't really even read the controversial book that everyone talks about, The Satanic Verses, written by Salman Rushdie, even before Hadi Matar, the attacker, was born. So what do you make of this attack from a general viewpoint? And then I can ask you more detailed questions about every aspect. But what do you make of all of this, and especially the timing of this attack? Uh, well, there's a lot to say on the topic. I think like most people, including Salman Rushdie himself, I was uh, shocked that uh, the attack took place. Uh, and the reason was that, you know, no one was really talking about uh, the controversy related to Salman Rushdie's uh, famous book, uh, The Satanic Verses. Uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran was not really talking about it. It was very much an issue of the past not of the present, uh, particularly in terms of Iran's, you know, foreign policy goals. Um, hardliners within Iran um, would frequently, on the anniversary of the, um, the infamous fatwa, you know, um, recall it and talk about it. But if you were someone like this kid, a uh, 24-year-old, you know, American kid of Lebanese descent, and if you were to enter the world of the um, Islamic Republic of Iran, particularly the official uh, state television media um, uh, organizations that broadcast the official narrative of the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, you wouldn't see uh, Salman Rushdie or um, the Satanic Verses or the Fatwa. You'd have to dig very very hard to find it. And of course, what's interesting about, you know, this particular story and this particular attacker is that he was born 10 years after the fatwa. Um, to my knowledge, he wasn't a fluent Farsi speaker. Um, but for some reason, he decided to carry out this uh, act of violence, which raises, you know, a lot of questions as to why, uh, why now, what the motive is, uh, etc. And so we can talk about some of that. Sure. So let's first talk about the fatwa. Everyone's been talking about the fatwa. I did a bunch of interviews. Everyone asked me about the fatwa. First, explain briefly what a fatwa actually is. And then if you, you can explain this specific fatwa, this religious decree by uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, the previous supreme leader of Iran, um, and sort of the surrounding backlash and protests around Salman Rushdie's book that led to this fatwa. Yep. So a fatwa is a um, 
a, a legal decree. It's a non-binding legal opinion that's issued in response to a legal or particular social or moral problem. It's not a personal opinion, but um, it's really um, uh, uh, a uh, an opinion that is given in response to a particular social or political dilemma. So, for example, if one asks, you know, how many times a day do Muslims pray? Um, the answer to that question is not a fatwa. If someone asks, you know, for example, do you think it's a good idea to marry someone older than myself? The response to that question is a personal piece of advice. It's not a, uh, a legal decree or a fatwa. So a fatwa assumes a certain sort of conflict of evidence, a moral dilemma. It's based on the need to weigh and evaluate evidence and reconcile competing, you know, moral claims. And in the language of Islamic jurisprudence, known as fiqh, a fatwa is issued in response to a certain problematic matter. And so at the time of the publication of the book, in fact, um, it was it was more than six months after the book came out. Uh, the book was published in 1988, and uh, Khomeini issues his infamous fatwa um, on Valentine's Day, uh, 1989. Um, he's asked for his opinion on the book and the controversy and the protests that were beginning within various Muslim communities around the world, and then he issued his, you know, infamous ruling calling calling for the death of Salman Rushdie and saying that it was morally incumbent upon Muslims to carry out um, the, um, the, uh, a death sentence against him because he had allegedly blasphemed um, the Prophet Muhammad and, and that was the appropriate you know, Muslim response. So, of course, this um, elevated the controversy onto the global stage. Um, uh, and it, it did it for several reasons, not because of the you know, act of violence, but because of the figure of Khomeini himself. Not only was he a prominent Islamic religious leader, um, um, you know, earning the title Ayatollah, suggesting that he was a very highly ranked religious leader, but of course when he issued the fatwa, he was also the head of state of a major Islamic country and regional power in the Middle East. Thus, um, clearly suggesting that this was now state policy to carry out a death sentence against Salman Rushdie and that the Islamic Republic was now going to use its state resources to implement the fatwa. So this produced a huge global crisis at the time um, and a huge crisis particularly for the Islamic Republic of Iran that lasted um, for, for over a decade. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the aftermath of that. First of all, I don't want to turn this into a religious discussion, but if you can briefly explain how long a fatwa is valid, because there's some uh, disagreement on that, because the issuer of the fatwa, essentially the previous supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, is dead. And then we know that the Iranian government tried to unofficially, but tried to distance itself from the fatwa and in a way um, signal to the Europeans that this is no longer state policy. We know the actual fatwa, the issuance of the fatwa really impacted, severed Iran's ties with Europe, specifically with the UK. And slowly over the years, especially after the death of Khomeini, um, the Iranian government tried to distance itself, including to this day, we see in their statements, there is still hate uh, towards Salman Rushdie, but it seems like they're trying to distance themselves from the attack. Talk about that and how that fatwa has 
stayed or it faded in Iranian official government policy over the years. Right. So the official um, view that you uh, uh, hear sometimes with respect to uh, a fatwa, at least this is what some people in Iran have said, that because the person who issued the fatwa has passed away, in this case Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, it can't be revoked. Uh, only the person who issued it can revoke it. So that's one argument. But of course, the Islamic Republic of Iran um, um, the next supreme leader, or the current one, Khamenei, could always have, you know, he could issue another fatwa, you know, saying that um, killing Salman Rushdie is no longer required or Islamically um, um, a necessity. Of course, they didn't do that. In fact, they did the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they have constantly reaffirmed that the fatwa is still valid. In fact, um, Khamenei did that as as recently as 2019 on Twitter. Um, And the Islamic Republic has tried to sort of have it both ways. They've uh, clearly said that this is no longer state policy. They are no longer going to send agents to assassinate Salman Rushdie. And after the recent attack last week, um, they've tried to distance themselves from any connection to the death of Salman Rushdie politically but ideologically within the Islamic Republic of Iran, particularly the hardline um, constituency, they have you know, celebrated the attack last week on Salman Rushdie, saying that he deserves to die, claiming that um, the death sentence that Khomeini issued was um, ideologically and uh, thus morally, from their perspective, the right thing to do. And they haven't backtracked one iota. And this is very much part and parcel of a particular hardline um, Islamist ruling uh, reading of the world that seeks to sort of situate um, political Islam and a certain Islamic consciousness in uh, sharp contrast and distinction to the West, to universal human rights values. Uh, It's not that different from the worldview that we see in Afghanistan under the Taliban and that we've seen more recently uh, with ISIS, although not as harsh and as brutal, but I would argue um, Iranian hardliners in their discourse on issues of human rights, on the status of women, on minorities, on the use of violence to um, um, support their worldview, all fall within the same moral category with some distinctions, but largely um, representing the same Uh, set of values in our contemporary world. So the hardliners have sort of tried to have it both ways, sort Mm. of saying that, look, we're we're not responsible for the attack. This is not Iranian state policy, but ideologically and um, theologically, uh, someone like Salman Rushdie, who blasphemes Islam, deserves to die. Um, no, no, I also want to talk about the other viewpoint, essentially the opposite. I We saw a statement from a number of Iranian religious thinkers, majority of them living abroad in exile, who strongly condemn this attack from a religious viewpoint. And they say that this is this kind of violence, essentially they call it terrorism, and they say it's in contrast to the worldview of the majority of Muslims. Do you agree with that, that this is not what the majority of Muslims around the world believe in, that you should take this type of violent terrorist attack against someone who you disagree with or who has disrespected your faith? 
I'm glad you raised that statement because I think it's one of the most interesting developments um, related to this controversy over Salman Rushdie. Uh, it was a very courageous statement um, um, that effectively was a you know a slap in the face to the worldview of Iranian hardliners who like to claim that they are the embodiment of Islamic authenticity. But I think this is the point. Here's the controversy. Um, historically speaking. Islamic tradition, all of the schools of thought, both within the Shia um, um, faction of Islam and the Sunni uh, majority uh, faction of Islam, um, have a moral problem, in my view, when it comes to the question of how to respond to an act of blasphemy or apostasy. Islamic tradition on this question developed in the pre-modern world prior to the uh, arrival of uh, a human rights discourse um, sanctioned a very harsh punishment for the act of blasphemy. Now, this is, not, this is not unique to Islam, but this is very much in keeping with how the uh, crime of blasphemy was viewed by many communities in many different religious traditions uh, throughout history. It's considered to be a severe uh, offense and punishment is equally severe. Uh, um, so Muslims and Islam is no different uh, in this particular category. But the challenge is what do you do about the contemporary moment that we're living in, in the modern world where you have human rights, international law, um, and uh, broadly accepted notions of freedom of expression. Uh, so there is here a moral tension uh, within the community of Muslims over how do you respond to an act of blasphemy. What Khomeini said was very much in keeping with a traditional understanding of Islam. Uh, what was so interesting and I would argue encouraging about the statement um, by Iranian religious opposition leaders um, in response to last week's attack was an attempt to uh, stake out a new moral ground saying that, look, these types of acts of violence against someone like Salman Rushdie, who writes an offensive book that Muslims um, were deeply offended by, um, responding violently to someone like that is not in keeping with Islamic tradition and Islamic ethical values. Uh, so this is an area of contention. Uh, it's an area that there is... Uh, uh, a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of really, I think, positive um, moral um, development that has taken place among the community of Islamic scholars. But it is a flashpoint. It is a civilizational sort of um, um, point of tension over, you know, how do you respond uh, to this particular, um, uh, you know, moral dilemma. So uh, that's, I think, the broader context that we have to sort of put things that we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about this particular uh, and topic. And so I was very encouraged by that statement that you just referenced, because it does suggest that the ground has shifted um, among Iranian, you know, uh, religious uh, intellectuals. Back at the time of the um, uh, declaration of the fatwa, you saw no such dissent. There was a general view that Khomeini as a religious leader was sort of, you know, representing what Islam um, had to say on the question of blasphemy. But over the last 30 years, uh, a lot of things have changed, particularly within Iran and within the field of Islamic religious thinking uh, in the direction of a much more um, Islamic ethical understanding of the world. And I think the statement, you know, by these Iranian opposition religious uh, figures represents that um, seismic shift. 
Mm -hmm. Let me read a couple of parts from this uh, statement. As you said, it's also excellent. It's They say that they believe the vast majority of experts in Islamic studies have been decisively rejecting what they call a confused and polluted image of Islam. And now they're saying they're arguing against it based on rational rules, verses of the Quran, and credible Islamic sources. And then at the end, they say that we stand with the victims of terror and um, condemn it and condemn authoritarian states who support Islamic terrorism, essentially what they're calling Islamic terrorism. I want to ask you about that. Islamic terrorism and also part of the bigger uh, context of the global radicalization pattern. Do you see a pattern in this, how a young man, a 24-year-old, is essentially radicalized and arrives at a point at this place um, when he com- where he commits tries to commit a murder, as these scholars are calling it, an act of terrorism. I even see similarities with um, not n- not just Islamic terrorist acts, with that attack in uh, Norway by the Norwegian white supremacist Anders Breivik. There was an attack in Christchurch, New Zealand. What do you see, if you do, as far as similarities, and explain how this pattern develops, and essentially a person arrives at this radicalized and very dangerous place. There's something about uh, youth, um, young people in their late teens and early 20s living in our contemporary world um, that often leads to um, radicalization. This can happen within the community of Muslims. It can happen in the West. It can happen within all of the major world religions. Uh, Young people at that age are trying to figure out who they are, um, uh, how do they understand their particular um, position in this world. And in the age of social media, uh, one thing that we see in all of the cases that you mentioned is social media uh, radicalizing young people toward acts of violence. Um, That's the case in... um, uh, uh, the ISIS phenomenon, which you know we were dealing with roughly you know six to seven years ago, it was a key factor. It's in the factor of you know the attackers in Norway and the attacker against the the mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, and it's also the case as we're now seeing in the case of Hadi Matar, the twenty four year old, you know. Um, um, kid who was responsible for the attack on Salman Rushdie. You know, the, the reports that we have so far is we have a kid who comes from a broken home, um, wasn't particularly interested in religion until he goes back one summer to Lebanon and comes back changed. You know, he spends a lot of time um, uh, watching video games in his mom's basement. He doesn't have particular direction in life. And then he becomes, you know, radicalized um, um based on a, um, in, in the case of Hadi Matar, based on a visit to, to, to southern Lebanon where there is, you know, a strong influence of Iran's revolutionary, you know, worldview in those, um, in those villages and towns in southern Lebanon. What we know is that his uh, social media page was inundated with images of um, Iranian leaders of Qasem Soleimani, of um, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, and so it fits a particular pattern. In fact, when I heard the story of the attacker, it immediately reminded me of the radicalization process of these young um, uh, Muslim kids living in Europe and, and in North America who left um, 
their homes to go and join ISIS for reasons that are almost identical uh, to what I'm just describing and to uh, what has happened to this this young kid in, in New Jersey who attacked Salman Rushdie. So I think that's the broader sort of phenomenon that's taking place. And the key theme, I think, that unites all of these stories is social media radicalization. It's um, often um, – um, mental health issues. It's often family turmoil, and it's often trying to search for some meaning in life that that uh, translates into this uh, radicalized worldview. Where, uh, sadly, uh, many of these young people feel that they can, you know, accomplish something meaningful by committing these acts of violence. Right, and I think it's also the role of misinformation that's being pushed out about certain communities or people, or in this case, a book, which. The attacker, Hadi Matar, says that he hasn't even read the satanic verses, but he's radicalized and hated the author so much that it prompted him to go and essentially try to kill him. Let's talk about the book. Now there, the satanic verses, um, as you said, it caused a lot of controversy in the Muslim world, across the Muslim world. It wasn't just Iran. In fact, it didn't even start in Iran, but it's gotten to the point of not just the fatwa, but also the book being banned, I think, in India, Iran, and a number of other countries. Talk about what's in the book that makes it so offensive to Muslims and um, whether you think it's something that most Muslims actually were uh, offended and felt disrespected by. Well, if you read the book, clearly there are um, depictions and uh, characterizations of sacred figures that Muslims hold uh, very close to their heart, that are foundational to their identity, that are mocked and depicted in very um, problematic ways. So, you know, for example, Salman Rushdie portrays uh, the prophet of Islam, the prophet Muhammad, as a brothel keeper um, and suggests in the book that his wives were effectively prostitutes. Um, you know, the sacred beliefs of Muslims are mocked and ridiculed uh, throughout the book. The very title of the book, The Satanic Verses, you know, suggests that the Quran itself um, is the work of the devil, not the word of God, as most Muslims believe, uh, based on a very old controversy in Islamic revelation that suggests that the Prophet Muhammad wasn't able to distinguish between authentic revelation from God and the uh, inspiration from the devil who allegedly had intervened during time of the time of revelation. Um, and also, you know, within the book, if you read it, he, uh, Salman Rushdie, that is, you know, gives the Prophet Muhammad the name which uh, Rushdie himself describes as a synonym for the devil. Uh, the word is mahund. Um, and so these are sort of, this is within the context of the book. Of course, he's using literary creativity and literary, you know, license here to, um, to tell his story, which is perfectly within his right as an author to do so. But when you mock the sacred symbols of any community, you're bound to offend them. And that's, I think, at the core of the controversy here. But of course, there's the, the history um, of, um, of a very negative and long uh, legacy of Western portrayal and depictions of Islam and the Prophet Muhammad in particular within Western literature that forms a particular, you know, backdrop to the story. Now, most Muslims 
don't know this unless they've actually studied it. But, you know, Salman Rushdie wasn't the first person to engage in this type of, you know, depiction and a depiction of Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. There's a very long history of anti-Muslim and Islamic polemics within the Western representation of Islam, for which the satanic verses is just um, a, a, a later manifestation. So all of this is in the backdrop of the story or is part of the story. But I think the politics of this is important as well. There's, there's, there has been very tense relations between the Islamic world and the West for a very long time. There's a general perception that Muslims are living under um, – um, uh, Western-backed uh, repressive regimes that uh, don't respect Muslim values and sentiments. So, you know, when 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 the controversy broke out, this was very much, I think, central to the um, to the to the to, to the story itself, which elevated it to a global crisis. Mm -hmm. And do you think, or is the is the perception not only a disrespect or ridicule of the belief and the sacred symbols, but do is there also a view that disconnects to, as you were saying, the complicated relationship and the um, treatment of Muslims, especially in the West or by the West, or the certain discrimination that they feel or abuses um, that they've experience in these societies do you think they see a link those who are offended they see a link also between their essentially lived experience and um, products like this or is it just a um, attack on the actual beliefs I think it's more of the second but it's not a coincidence that the um, crisis surrounding the book takes place right at the time of another major crisis in Islam-West relations, and that was in France, the discrimination against hijab-wearing Muslim women. That was a global uh, phenomenon that, you know, sent a message um, very much along the lines of what you just described, that Western liberal democracies uh, particularly in this case, France, don't respect the religious values of Muslims. So this has been an ongoing sort of problem and issue. It's gotten worse in recent years with the rise of Islamophobia. But at the time um, um, of the Salman Rushdie crisis, you know, there was this general sense that, look, Islam is not valued and appreciated. And then when you have uh, a book such as this um, that's elevated and celebrated by prominent Western intellectuals and governments as the embodiment of civilizational progress and values. Of course, I'm talking about after the death, death sentence was issued. That sort of reinforces this image in the minds of many Muslims of an attack of Western governments, of intellectuals sort of celebrating a book of defamation, just, you know, adding effectively adding fuel to the fire of uh, what was a dialogue of the deaf. You know, the West did not understand why Muslims were so offended and Muslims didn't understand why the West was so enamored with this particular author in this book. Mm-hmm. Now let's uh, come back to today and I want to uh, I want you to put this in a political context because we know there's very sensitive and important nuclear diplomacy essentially happening between Iran and the West, mainly the US. It's the time of decision right now. Both sides are thinking and there is an imminent potential nuclear deal and a diplomatic victory to be achieved. 
And in the backdrop of that, that this attack happens, um, again, we still don't know if and how this attacker was um, related or connected to Iran. But do you think this incident, and there is also a similar incident, an alleged assassination plot against uh, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, and uh, also the U.S. Um, law enforcement basically saying that the Iranian government is actively trying to go after former Trump officials, President Trump himself, Secretary of State Pompeo, as a retaliation for the assassination of the Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. So putting all of this in the backdrop of the nuclear negotiations and the Salman Rushdie attack, do you think this is going to impact the um, diplomatic process um, and the uh, potential achievement and how it's essentially going to shape the West, Iran-West uh, relations in the long or short term? I don't think it's going to have a direct impact on the um, uh, question of diplomacy. Um, uh, one, because the Iranian government has distanced itself from any direct involvement in uh, the attack on Salman Rushdie. Um, what it will do is reinforce this already you know, negative image of the Islamic Republic of Iran within uh, the West. So I think that's probably going to be the biggest impact. It reminds everyone of a situation that, and, and of a, you know, a religious decree of fatwa that many people had forgotten. Um, but I don't think there's going to be any direct impact on the nuclear negotiations, largely because the United States and Europe um, or I should let me clarify, the United States under Biden and those people who support diplomacy with Iran and the European Union um, strongly believe that it's in their national interest to have uh, Iran's nuclear program under international inspection and get it back within the framework of the uh, JCPOA. Um, uh, but, but, you know, you do hint, you know, at um, the question of timing. Uh, one of the mm -hmm. things that I thought about when I first heard about this attack is sort of, you know, um, what explains the timing? That's the obvious sort of social science, you know, question that you have. Why is this happening now? Is it just a coincidence, which is one possibility? Um, or are there nefarious political forces at stake here that are responsible for this attack? So one possible explanation could be that, you know, after the assassination of Iran's top general in January 2020, Qasem Soleimani, Iran was looking to retaliate. And uh, the Department of Justice, um, about a few days before the attack on Salman Rushdie, announced that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps were seeking to um, assassinate um, uh, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. So this could be one possible explanation. Uh, they couldn't go after Pompeo and Bolton. In other words, the IRGC couldn't go after those high-value targets. So they chose a soft target such as, such as Salman Rushdie. Perhaps, mm -hmm. possibly, uh, we don't know. The other possibility, which I actually think is much more likely, is that this young kid, Hadi Matar, was in communication with someone online who claimed to be an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps supporter and lured him into attacking Salman Rushdie. And that so-called person online claiming to be affiliated with the Islamic Republic of Iran could have been a Mossad operative. Uh, Israel has taken a very strong position against reviving the Iran nuclear agreement. We were in very sensitive negotiations. It looked like an agreement was imminent. And then the attack on Salman Rushdie takes place. I think that's one 
possible interpretation um, and scenario that could explain the timing of this at this at this moment um, um, during these sensitive political discussions related to Iran's nuclear program. So those are some of my my uh, my thoughts on 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 the politics of this um, you know attack against uh, the writer Salman Rushdie. Mm-hmm. And we certainly know that there are powerful hawkish forces, both inside Iran, as you said, across the region, and um, some here in Washington, who have time and again tried to stop diplomacy or sabotage it in different ways. So on that note, Nader, I want to thank you so much for your time and for coming back on the Iran podcast. Happy to be with you, Nagar. Keep up the good work. Thank you. That was Nader Hashemi, Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver. And thank you for tuning in to the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review and a rating. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on support. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. The Iran Podcast is produced by Joshua Barlow in Washington, D.C. Our graphic artwork is by Mina Jafari, and the theme music is by 127 Band. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.